0: Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson.
1: It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio Benjamin Madley. Benjamin Madley is an associate professor of history at the University of California, Los Angeles. He is also the chair of the American Indian studies program there. Uh, he focuses on Native America, the United States, and on genocide in world history. Benjamin Madley is the author of a very important new book called An American Genocide, the United States and the California Indian Catastrophe. Benjamin Madley, welcome to Talk Nation Radio.
2: Thank you very much for having me on your show.
1: Uh, great to have you on. An American genocide. This focuses on one state, California, and on a period of years 1846 to 1873. What, what is it that happened in that time and place?
2: The book begins in 1846 because that was the year both that the United States invaded California and took control of it, and also because that was the year in which United States forces committed the first major massacre in California. The book concludes in 1873 because that was the end of the last major Indian hunting campaign in the state of California and because it was also the year in which major legal transformations took place that gave California Indians some measure of rights in the state's political and legal system.
1: When you say Indian hunting campaign, you don't mean Indians going out hunting, do you?
2: Quite the opposite. Rather, I mean primarily european american people going out and hunting california indians
1: and and during this period of time uh, you suggest that the population of native californians may have dropped from 150,000 to 30,000 i mean those are those are small numbers in terms of current us wars but those are that's a huge proportion of the population and and that was due to due to killings
2: diseases Dislocation and starvation caused many of these deaths, but the near annihilation of California Indian peoples was not the unavoidable result of two civilizations coming into contact for the first time. What I argue in this book was that it was in fact genocide, sanctioned and facilitated by California state and federal officials.
1: You say in the book that this killing was more, quote, more lethal and sustained than anywhere else in the United States or its colonial antecedents. Is that, is that really true? This was a, a bigger genocide than, uh, than anything that had gone before it on this continent?
2: It's not an exaggeration to say that California legislators established a state-sponsored killing machine. California's governors called out or authorized no fewer than two dozen separate volunteer state militia expeditions between the years 1850 and 1861, which killed at least 1,340 California Indian people. Now, at the same time that these militia expeditions were going on, they inspired vigilantes to kill at least 6,460 additional California Indian people during the period. In addition, the US Army and their auxiliary forces also killed another 1,680 California Indian people. So overall, I was able to document in my research somewhere between 9,000 and 16,000 individual killings. These are direct killings with tomahawks and rifles and cannons and nooses, not Indirect killings through starvation, exposure, and the like. So this makes this period, 1846 to 1873, and this place, California, one of the most lethal places for indigenous people in the entire history of the United States.
1: But in addition to those 9,000 to 16,000 direct kills uh, out of the 120,000 human beings who died, uh, those other factors come into play as well, right? I mean, intentional deprivation of food supplies, denial of of possibility to reproduce and have families, uh, harsh conditions in slavery that worked people to death. I mean, it wasn't all accident and disease, Right
2: that's right let's talk for a moment about what genocide is the definition that i'm using so there's a definition that was unanimously passed by the united nations genocide uh, by the united nations general assembly in 1948 and the u.n genocide convention has a two-part definition for the crime first perpetrators have to evince intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And second, they commit one of five genocidal acts listed in the convention. And these acts include one, killing members of the group, two, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, three, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, four, imposing measures intended to prevent births and finally five forcibly transferring children of the group to another group and in california during this period there is evidence not only of explicit intent to destroy but also of all five of those genocidal crimes and just to highlight the issue of intent I think it's important to understand that intent was being articulated by leaders at the highest levels. So for example, in the year 1851, California's first elected civilian governor, a man named Peter Burnett, declared that, and I quote, a war of extermination will continue to be waged until the Indian race becomes extinct. And the very next year, California Senator John Weller who later became the state's governor in 1858, went even further. He told fellow U.S. senators in Washington, D.C. that California Indians, and I quote, will be exterminated before the onward march of the white man. And this senator, Weller, insisted that the interest of the white man demands their extinction. Now, you mentioned before that it's more than just direct killings, and that's true. Beyond premeditated, systematic killing campaigns, other acts of genocide proliferated. The book documents many rapes and beatings, and these meet the UN Convention's definition of causing serious bodily harm to victims on the basis of their group identity and with the intent to destroy the group. In addition, the sustained policy, which I should add was both a military policy and a civilian vigilante policy of demolishing California Indian villages and their food stores while driving survivors into mountain regions did amount to deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Further, if you think through the implications, malnutrition and exposure predictably lower birth rates, and that means that some state and federal decision-makers also were guilty of imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Finally, unfree Indian labor and the trafficking in unfree Indian laborers often involved forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, and scholars estimate that 3,000 to 4,000 or more California Indian children suffered these kinds of forced transfers. Now, If you break up families and you deliberately tear apart communities, these forced removals also constituted imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And in effect, the state legalized abduction and enslavement of Indian minors, slavers exploited indenture laws, and federal officials then prevented the US Army from intervening to protect the victims.
1: So so this fits very well, the definition of genocide, but the definition of genocide didn't exist, of course, at the time. Uh, So people were not thinking of it in those terms. Uh, And from what I can make from your book, uh, this is not something that was done in secret by the CIA, which also didn't exist. This This was open and public. There were state legislators... Senators, Congress members, newspaper editorial boards, you know, openly advocating what we would call genocide. I mean, how, how accepted was it uh, in the European-American culture, and, and what resistance was there to it there?
2: Well, I have a two-part answer to your excellent question. The first part of the answer is that while the term genocide did not exist in the mid-19th century in the English language, the phrase War of Extermination, or Extermination War, did. And this was, in effect, the equivalent concept, although not codified in an international legal treaty like the UN Genocide Convention. It was widely understood that a war of extermination waged against indigenous people would mean the widespread killing of women and children, uh, the murder of elderly people, and the destruction of whole villages. So I think that there was a consciousness that did exist at this time in California about the reality of what policies were being carried out. It's hard to wrap your head around the idea of the government carrying out such a policy, but it did. Uh, Not only did the the governors of California call out two dozen militia expeditions, These were not rogue operations. State legislators passed three separate bills in the 1850s that raised up to $1.51 million to fund these operations. And I should remind your listeners, this is a very great deal of money in the 1850s. And they raised this money after the fact. They raised this money and expended it usually after the reports of what the militias had done had come in. So by demonstrating that the state wouldn't punish Indian killers, but instead financially reward them and reward them quite richly, militia expeditions helped to spread the word throughout the state that killing Indians would not only not be punished, but would actually be rewarded. And if Mm -hmm. you think that this is merely something that's going on in a kind of rogue state, The United States Congress then voted to reimburse the state of California nearly a million dollars, also after the fact, to pay for these operations.
1: And and what public visible resistance or outrage or condemnation or alternative solutions were in the, the culture of the European Californians at the time?
2: There were people who bravely stood up to protect California Indians. There were United States Army officers who not only refused to participate in the killing, but who actually defended California Indians from vigilante groups. There were state legislators in the Senate and the Assembly who spoke up against these policies. There was even resistance in the United States Senate Uh, to these policies and to paying for these killing operations. Everywhere that I found someone standing up for Indian people, I tried to underscore that action because it points out to us that there were people who understood that this was absolutely wrong and that it was in fact evil while it was happening. So while there was a broad-based consensus that made this politically possible, there were people who understood that it was the wrong thing
1: to do. It seems that prior to the period that you look at, starting in eighteen forty six and even into that period, it was it was more common to enslave native Californians than to murder them. Uh, and you describe how the slavery in inhumane conditions and forcing uh, Californian Indians to, to eat from troughs like pigs and so forth helped to dehumanize them in the eyes of the new uh, immigrants. Uh, but you also talk for a while as though their value as, uh, as slaves meant that they would be kept alive, they would be cared for to some extent uh, because of their value as workers, where, where that clearly seems to have shifted uh, somehow to uh, a much greater desire to kill them than to exploit their labor. How did that transition happen?
2: One of the arguments of the book is that there is a major demographic shift that takes place as a result of the gold rush. Before California is invaded by the United States in 1846, the non-Indian population is quite small, it's somewhere between 12 and 14,000. By 1860, there are over 360,000 non-Indian people in the state of California. What this demographic transformation means in the marketplace for labor is that the cost of non-Indian labor falls precipitously during that period between 1846 and 1860, such that it is no longer so advantageous to use Indian labor even if it's very cheap. More importantly, though, is the fact that there are many people, some of them advocates of free soil and free labor, abolitionist Republicans, who see Indian labor as a challenge to the dignity of free white labor. So there is actually one instance in the book in which a free soiler says something to the effect of the destruction of Indian people in this area is a horrible thing, but at the same time it has the salutary effect of getting rid of an unfree labor system and replacing it with a free labor system.
1: It's mass murder, but it has advantages. Uh, we're speaking with Benjamin Madley, whose book is An American Genocide, the United States and the California Indian Catastrophe. Uh, Benjamin, you talk in the book about the the sort of ideologies, the sort of justifications and rationalizations that went through people's minds, and... Uh, Propaganda, for lack of a better word during this period, uh, depicting the, the California Indians as wild beasts and evil monsters, and shifting blame to them, but then at some point uh, the the ideology develops that well, their extermination is just inevitable it 's out of our control, uh, i mean even in the mouths of the very people doing it how how could that you know how do the, these sorts of things develop I mean it was there a a, a lobby a, a a propaganda group intentionally promoting such nonsense or did it did, did these sorts of thoughts develop spontaneously how can how can people think such things
2: I think that there are two main pillars to the ideology of Indian hiding in US history one of the pillars is the notion that Indians are demonic and that indigenous people are somehow connected to Satan. And those ideas are very old indeed. We can see them expressed uh, by Puritan writers in the early 17th century. And they continue on into the mid 19th century. So they have a long history and that idea of Indians as demonic was a very mature Uh, rhetorical set of devices by the time uh, these events are taking place. The second uh, pillar or foundation of Indian hating um, is a somewhat more subtle argument, and it's the argument that indigenous peoples are fated to vanish, that their destiny is extermination, as you put it. And The reason that this is such a powerful rhetorical device is that it's an end-run around moral blame and responsibility. It takes the human hand off the tiller of policy and replaces it with the hand of destiny, uh, biological determinism, or simply providence. What this means is that governors and military leaders and elected officials could argue to the public that killing Indians en masse was simply speeding destiny. That is, that these forces carrying out horrific, atrocious acts, killing babies by dashing their heads against rocks or splitting them open with tomahawks, that these people carrying out these heinous crimes were actually the agents of providence or the agents of destiny. This then cleared the perpetrators of blame.
1: Uh, uh, very well said. A lot of this does seem consistent with what went before it in U.S. history and with everything that has come since in U.S. history uh, as the U.S. military moves into foreign countries and often speaks of them as Indian territory. Uh, I mean, when you look at something like the the recent U.S. war in Iraq, uh, you haven't lost 80 percent of the population, but probably 5% and 100% of certain ethnic groups and, you know, heavy tolls on Sunni Muslim population uh, and every tool of uh, of the definition of genocide that you listed to be found in, you know, current U.S. wars. And most people in the United States would tell you today that war is inevitable, war is in human nature, war is, you know, war is something beyond our control, uh, whereas a lot of populations of human beings around the globe wouldn't tell you that. Um, you know, how how much of our current thinking goes back to this period, and and, and what was— what was it that was really unique in this period that you're looking at? Because it seems it seems actually pretty consistent with everything before and since.
2: Well, there is a very strong current of Indian hating in United States history, and it's something that I'm working hard to correct, in part by bringing the truth of these kinds of crimes into the American consciousness. Uh, but it isn't over. Violence against peaceful Native American men, women, elders and children continues in the 21st century United States. Uh, You know, only recently peaceful American Indian people protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline had attack dogs set upon them by a private security firm simply for peacefully protesting the construction of a huge oil pipeline, a project that threatens not only people on the Standing Rock Reservation, but also many people in surrounding communities in the Dakotas and beyond. So these are issues that we need to continue to confront, and these are issues that I think scholars and journalists should be shedding light on.
1: Yeah, and that use of dogs was, was rather unique. We've seen a lot of Protests dominated by white Americans, uh, and not seen that uh, in recent months. Uh, well, what do you think in, in terms of of raising awareness in California and in in making restitution for the damage in California to the you know minimal extent that that's possible? What what do you think is needed? Uh, you know, how can this neglected history be made better known? How can we get it taught and Uh, and and what should be done to make amends.
2: Well, the issue of genocide in California under U.S. rule clearly, as you suggested, poses explosive questions. They're political questions, economic questions, and educational questions for the state of California, for California's tribes, for the federal government, and for individual California Indians. And ultimately, it's up to California Indian people not academics like me, to decide the best way forward. But I can pose some of the questions that are in my mind. One of them is, will state or federal officials tender public apologies like the ones that President Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush did in the 80s for the relocation and internment of some 120,000 Japanese Americans during the Second World War? And by the way, many of these people were citizens of the state of California. And some of these major relocation camps were located within the boundaries of the state of California. Reparations, which you mentioned, are then a very important subordinate issue. Should state officials or federal officials offer compensation? Again, the internment of Japanese-Americans has set a kind of benchmark. Congress has now paid out more than $1.6 billion to some 82,000 of these Japanese Americans and their heirs. Other questions uh, that arise, you know, are uh, should the state or the federal government or their agencies return control to California Indian communities of lands where genocidal events took place, places where people starved to death in reservation lands? places where people were massacred in large numbers. Another question is about commemoration. Will the state or federal government build memorials to these events? Should the state and federal government stop commemorating the men who supported and perpetrated this genocide, including men like the former governor Peter Burnett, the explorer Kit Carson, John C. Fremont a U.S. general and the first Republican candidate for president. There are also questions about education. Will the genocide against California Indians join the Armenian genocide or the Holocaust in public school curricula or public discourse? I do think these questions are crucial. What's beyond doubt is that both the state and the federal government should acknowledge the genocide that took place here in California. And I'll tell you why I think this matters, for your listeners who are wondering. First of all, I think that decency demands that even long after the deaths of victims, we preserve the truth of what happened to them so that their memory can be honored and the, the repetition of similar crimes, not only here but around the world, deterred. Secondly, justice demands that even long after the perpetrators have disappeared, we document and publicize the crimes that they and their advocates have too often concealed or denied or suppressed. And finally, truth. As an historian, I'm concerned with historical veracity. And in this instance, historical veracity demands that we acknowledge what is no less than a state-sponsored catastrophe in all its varied aspects and causes in order to better understand formative events in California Indian Native American and ultimately United States history
1: Benjamin madley we have about a minute and a half left how many california indians are there now in california uh, where are they living and and are there any organized efforts that are underway by them to for any of the goals you just discussed and and how might how might people help out who wanted to contribute?
2: Well there are approximately hundred and fifty thousand California Indian people uh, in California today which is nothing less than a miraculous testament to their forebearers ability to survive amidst almost impossible situation of mass murder. California also has more Indian people than any other state in the nation and also more federally recognized tribes than any other state in the nation. 110 with another 70 communities that are not federally recognized. California Indian people are already hard at work on commemorating and remembering these events. Uh, There are candlelit vigils held at massacre sites in the state, there are reenactments of uh, forced removals, and I think that there is a rising consciousness and interest among California Indians in bringing what they know to be true about their own history into the public eye for a wider discussion.
1: Well, I think you have contributed a powerful tool to that discussion. The book is called An American Genocide, the United States and the California Indian Catastrophe. We've been speaking with its author, Benjamin Madley. Benjamin, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio.
2: Thank you very much for having me as a guest.
0: This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org.